love getting to all worship together and know that each of those kids are going to classes where there's teachers that are prepared and they're all going to spend time in the Word. It's cool. It's, um, it's encouraging. And it's quieter. Um, welcome to our Wednesday night study of doom and gloom of the minor prophets. Um, it's, uh, it's, we're in the last, this study, um, hopefully we'll finish the Old Testament, it's the last 12 books. Um, they are minor prophets. They're not minor because of their um, content. They're minor because they're, they're shorter. That's all. That's the only reason they're called minor prophets. And so tonight we're going to be in Nahum. So turn to the book of Nahum right after Micah, and we're going to cover the whole book because it's a short one. And, um, and well, let me pray, and then we'll get right to it. Lord, we come to you now, and I'm, I'm thankful for your word. I'm humbled by your word. Um, tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm challenged by it, um, knowing that these are some, some hard things we're going to be looking at tonight regarding your judgment. We, we love you, Lord, and we, we know that your ways are so much higher than our ways, and so I'm thankful um, that we get to study your word tonight, and none of ours, but, but yours. Um, I'm thankful for the prophecies. I'm thankful for the promises that just make the reality of Christ so much more certain here as we are um, in the point in history that we live. Uh, we love you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's study is bad news for Ninevites, bad news for enemies of God, bad news for control freaks, but good news for everyone else. So if you're not a Ninevite, you're not an enemy of God, you're not a control freak, you may not be as bothered. Um, but if anyone in here happens to be a Ninevite or a control freak, um, it'll be challenging, no doubt about it. So let's look at chapter 1. And I'm going to do a large portion of reading tonight because we don't always have the opportunity to go through the entire text, but there's a there's not too much of it, so we can actually read through it. So I'd like to look at chapter 1 together. And um, we, we have looked at Jonah, we've looked at Micah, and here we are in Nahum. So look at one one. It says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, um, Nahum's a bit of a different one. Usually these prophecies are spoken and someone else is writing it. But this one appears to be written in a book form by Nahum. Uh, we, all we know of Nahum is that they're from Elkosh. Nahum's from Elkosh, but we don't know where Elkosh is. So um, this intro tells us a whole lot of nothing other than what it wants to tell us, which it's, it's a, an oracle concerning Nineveh from Nahum of Elkosh, where we don't know that is. We know it's somewhere in Judah. And here's what Nahum says. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel, wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries or adversaries, depending on who you are, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you, and you will burst your bonds apart, and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. (laughs) Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He's utterly cut off. No better way to dive into the minor prophets than just start reading. Because that is, whatever you're feeling right now is probably what you're supposed to be feeling right now. If it's just confusion, then we'll work through that. But if you're kind of like, whoa, that's heavy, um, the prophets are supposed to be. Heavy. So like every study, um, we, we see a number of things in this first chapter, but in every study there are things we learn about ourselves and there's things we learn about God. So my first question, just in that reading of chapter one, what are some things we learn about God in this chapter? Just start throwing them out. He's, he's what? The Lord is good. Yeah, yeah it's in there. You probably shouldn't mess with him. He is in complete control. He's jealous God. He's just. Be wrathful. Slow to anger. What else? All knowing. He won't give a pass to the guilty. Judgment is absolutely certain. Powerful. Powerful. The reason it's important to go through this little exercise and say, okay, what did we learn about God? These aren't things that we think about every day. I mean, we can go day in and day out doing our work, you know, living with our families and not think about God as bringing judgment, not thinking about his wrath towards evil, not thinking about how he is, in fact, slow to anger, even though his anger is very real towards the unrighteousness that suppresses the truth. We don't give a lot of thought to that. It's, it's easy to make it through a day and, and not consider that. But the prophecies would, would have us do otherwise. What are some things, so we've seen some things about God. What are some things that we learn about um, the enemies of God, particularly Nineveh? What do we learn about Nineveh in that first chapter? They're vile. According to who? God. Yeah. Yep. Yep. They're not weak. They're, it says they have strength, and there's many of them. We see they, though they're at full strength and many. They worship many gods. They, yep. They worship many gods full of idols, carved images. What else do we know about them? They were oppressive. What else? 
Yeah, they are definitely not around anymore. This was uh, the end of the game for Assyria. Nahum uh, clears up the, uh, the craziness. I'm sorry about the snotness that I've got going on here. I'm just going to call it out. It's gross. None of you have microphones with your sniffles, but I do, and it's disgusting. So I'll do myself not to get anything on the first couple of rows of people here. Um, what, so we learned some things about God. We learned some things about Nineveh. Nineveh is really evil. That, that's what you need to know here. The, the, the language is strong because the, the evil is significant coming from Nineveh. Now, what are some things we know about Nineveh from our previous studies? Because we've already engaged Nineveh. What do we know about Nineveh from the previous studies? So they were evil before, but Jonah went and preached, and some of them apparently repented. Okay? So we know that. What else do we know? What do we know about their evil? They tortured people. They killed babies. Yep, they persecuted Jews. What else? Where did the reality of their evil end up? Yeah, so this is where it gets really complicated. Syrians were crazy evil. So evil, in fact, that their evil reached God as he's seated in heaven. So we have to remember that one of the, well, one of the things I've personally been convicted of as I'm reading through these prophecies is I don't know if I view sin the way that God views sin. It's been something I've been convicted of, something I'm trying to be more aware of, that we can be so, evil can become so common. I mean, we go to movies for entertainment that are full of really evil stuff. I was watching something today talking about how it's, we actually live in a pornographic culture where things that are just the norm are actually some form of, of pornography, and it's, we're just inundated with images, we're inundated with fleshly things, we're inundated with evil things. Um, and so one of the things we've learned in, in our prophecy study so far is that God, God wants wrongs to be rebuked. E- evil is, is not ever commonplace to him. And in as much as it's commonplace to him, it's because we're not moving in accordance with his image as, as image bearers. So we know that they were evil before, and where it gets complicated is that God used the Assyrians to correct his children. So the evil that they had was partially against God's children. God takes care of his children. One of the ways he took care of his children was by allowing the evil to to come upon them because of their iniquity and turning from God. So this gets really complicated. I mean, the prophecies aren't light fair for us to look at. Essentially what we're saying is God always uses even the worst of circumstances for the ultimate good of his people. But that will mean that over the ages, some of his people whether they are against God or for God, they're going to meet trials, and some of them are going to be significant when you come upon people like the Assyrians because they are utterly wicked and violent. So this gets a little complicated. Here's some other background with Nineveh. Jonah prophesied in Nineveh around 760 B.C. 760 B.C. So that's an important detail because by 722 B.C., Assyria had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. So... There's God's people in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Jonah doesn't want to go there because they're so wicked and terrible and vile and they've done terrible, gross things to the Israelite people. He goes there. He has like this seven or eight word sermon. They all repent. 
um, sackcloth and ashes, full-on repentance, and they turn. But what we find by 722 B.C., you know, less than 40 years later, they destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Dever notes in, in this book, which this is the, the outline that we're using for the survey of the Old Testament. No need to recreate the wheel. This guy's really brilliant. So I use this a lot. And he notes in there, he says, um, within just a few decades, it, it appears that Nineveh repented of their repentance. This is the way he stated it. It was a good way to think about it. Like they repented, but many of them had gone back to the evil within just a few years. And so in 663 BC, so we're, we're moving down the road by around 60 years here. Stick with me on this timeline. The Assyrian Empire had pushed hundreds of miles into Egypt. Remember Egypt, the previous empire that was really big and no one could hang with them? Well, now Assyria is growing. They're pushing about a hundred or hundreds of miles into Egypt to Thebes, T-H-E-B-E-S, and they overtake Thebes. Thebes was one of the strong strongholds of the time. The people, you look at it on a map and you're like, no one can overtake Thebes, and the Assyrians did because they were that powerful. Like when it says, though they're at full strength and they were many, that is a, they are a force to be reckoned with. So they overcome Thebes within you know, 60 years of, of, of overcoming the northern kingdom of Israel. Nahum prophesied within a 50-year window following when Assyria was at the peak of their power as an, as an empire. So sometime between 663 and 612 is when they finally fell, is when Nahum is prophesying. So Nahum is saying all this stuff about judgment and God's going to absolutely throw down on you and you're going to regret it while they're at like the peak of their power. It would be like going up to someone who is in, you know, the incredible shape and saying, this, this, this person, this small person over here is going gonna, is gonna to overtake you because of their God. They'd be like, I'm, I'm at the peak of my shape. Um, there's other countries that you could imagine being threatened where they'd be like, yeah, right, that's, we couldn't fall. I mean, America's, I mean, we're seriously very patriotic slash nationalistic and like, I mean, I was born here and I am an American and I was brought up in knowing that I was born in the greatest country that ever existed in the history of the world. And they put little red, white, and blue, you know, jumpers on me and stuff when I was little. And, and so we have this view of like, man, no one, nothing could ever happen to America. The Assyrians were a world-dominating power for over 200 years. Do you know how old you are as a country? Like, we're just a few, we're babies. We're a few hundred years old. I've told the story about looking at different flags from different countries, and my daughter's saying, why are all these countries copying us? Look at all their stars and stripes. That's our thing. It's like, oh, look at you. Um, we're a few hundred. They're way older. Like, we're babies. They're grown-ups, you know? And so um, it's a good reminder here that, that um, Assyria is at the, at the peak of their power. Um, Nineveh is the, capital of the Assyrian, is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And all the while that Assyria is gaining power, Judah is perched up here on a hill, about 2,500 feet above sea level, um, Jerusalem being its capital. The southern kingdom of Judah is perched up. And so it's kind of interesting because Assyria is conquering everyone around them and they're kind of up on this hill and it's literally like floodwaters coming up as Assyria gains power and gains power. No one's worried about Judah. They're not threatened by Judah. Their, their goal is to eventually flatten Judah the way they did the northern kingdom. 
But Judah's just sitting there, and we have this Nahum prophet coming down saying, all right, now that y'all at the peak of power, God's going to knock you down swiftly. And so you can imagine what that must have been like hearing that. And I want you to understand the state of Assyria. I'm going to read from uh, Devers um, a quote, or a couple paragraphs actually, on page 816 in this little book, um, the Old Testament survey. He says, Assyria was the great power in that region of the world in the 8th and most of the 7th century, so 200 years. The capital city of Nineveh, located at the east side of the Tigris in an area bordering what today is the city of Mosul, Iraq, um, was one of the grandest and most powerful cities on earth. Its size, power, and wealth inspired fables. Its walls were a good picture of this magnificence. And listen to, listen to the walls that were around Nineveh. At least two series of walls surrounded the whole city, running on for miles and miles. The inner wall, the higher of the two, so there's two walls and the inner one is higher. This is, this is Nineveh was about 100 feet high and broad enough for three chariots to race abreast. On the outside of the two sets of those walls was a moat that was 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. Like, that's big. 150 feet wide, 60 feet deep. Then you get to a small wall that's already pretty big, but then you get to a huge wall where there's like people driving tanker trucks around on it. Like, it's big enough to to hold that, and it's 100 feet high. 150 feet high, 100 feet high. I don't want to make up numbers. It was all crazy big. The Tigris and the other small rivers surrounding Nineveh made the city appear impregnable. It was a gigantic city. It goes on to say, um, throughout these conquests all around, Judah sat there on the mountains watching. And Dever says, you realize, don't you, that the people of Judah were the hillbillies of their day? The waterfront folk, whether on coastlines or great, island, great inland waterways, are always the cosmopolitan and sophisticated ones. Think of the Phoenicians, the Greeks, the Assyrians, the Babylonians with their fertile valleys and coastlines. The people of Judah, on the other hand, lived up in the hills. They were literally like the hillbillies of the time, the rednecks. Jerusalem is over 2,500 feet above sea level without major rivers flowing into the sea. And they were regarded as backward. If they showed up in a big cosmopolitan city like New York or Washington, D.C. or something, they would have looked awkward and culturally clumsy. Yet there they sat for years and decades, watching the tide of the Assyrian Empire rise up and wash around them, threatening their cities as its power grew higher and higher. In fact, much of Judah experienced more than Assyria's threats. We know from surviving Assyrian records that the Assyrians destroyed almost 50 cities of Judah including Lachish, a southern city that guarded Jerusalem from the coastal plain along the Mediterranean. There were graphic pictures of Lachish's destruction um, survived to this day on Assyrian um, bas reliefs showing impaled men, dismembered bodies, victims of the Assyrians' push into Judah's hills. It was during this time um, when the greatest power in the world was cutting Judah's limbs, tortuously approaching the heart in Jerusalem that Nahum prophesied. And it's right here that we find the book's enduring relevance for the day. And he says this, God's people could not have had less control. So if you're a person who struggles with feeling like we don't have enough control, or you don't have enough control as a church, or your country doesn't have enough control, God's people could not have had less control. 
of their dire circumstances than they did, but God continued to call them through his prophet and his word to trust him as much as ever. So, are God's people in control right now? No. No, not at all. Um, according to looking at Nahum 1.7, who has God a stronghold to? Nahum 1.7, who's God a stronghold to? Those who take refuge in him, right? So God's a stronghold to those who take refuge in him. So my question is, what does it mean to take refuge in God in this situation? To, to know that what? Say that again. Yep. To trust him, to listen to what he's telling you to do. What'd you say? To know that he's in control. Yeah, total dependence on him. They don't have any control over Assyria. It's a joke to think that they could exercise any dominance, especially a military dominance, over Assyria. So what I'm wanting us to see here is that what does it mean to take refuge in God? Well, in this situation, it means trusting him when everything else is really dire. Really, it means trusting him eternally. Some of their cities have been overtaken. Some of their people have been tortured. Some of that, there's other graphic imagery that I didn't... Yeah, there's not even too young here. Um, that it was like like piles of heads, like things like that. They were they had really brutalized God's people, and yet He's saying, "I am a uh, I'm a stronghold for those who take refuge in Me." So I want us to see that refuge isn't doesn't mean that like you've got a perfect game plan and everything's going to go perfectly. Refuge means things are stinking crazy right now, and I trust God. I trust that ultimately, even if it means suffering, even if it means being tortured to some degree, even if it means being unloved, I trust that in the midst of the absolute craziness that God is sovereign. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to continue to do what He wants me to do. Um, look at Romans 8. I, just, I want to talk about this little detail for a minute. Romans 8. Keep your finger in Nahum. We'll be right back in it shortly. But in Romans 8, 12, it says... So then, brothers, were debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So what's the promise from God in that verse about our future? There's two promises. What's the first one? We are what? We're heirs and co-heirs, and then the second one is we will suffer. So there's a two-part promise there. Why will we suffer? Say that again. Yep, that we may be glorified with him, in him. Why else will we suffer? We tend to trust God more in bad times. When everything's going fine, we kind of depend on ourselves. Yep. 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 Yes. 
We're coached because we suffered. And so the thing I want you all to see is that we suffer with him. The reason we suffer is because Christ suffered. We serve a king who the world hates. I mean, you may be like one of the details you made, you look at this and say, we're, we're children of God. We're heirs of the promise. Well, I'm a son of the king. Yes, a king who they hated and killed. And so the reason we suffer is because Christ suffered. This is something that we should be reminded of because suffering is always something that seems surprising, right? When we suffer, it always seems surprising and it always seems unsavory. And the reality here is that if, if not experienced, if our suffering isn't experienced in a proper biblical context, and when I say proper biblical context, I mean people who are thinking biblically and people who have an eternal perspective, people who have a continual awareness of God, if not experienced in proper context, we may be inclined to turn from the thing that's causing our suffering. Why, why were people suffering at the hands of the Assyrians? Why were God's people suffering at the hands of the Assyrians? Okay. Part of it was they were disobedient. Part of it's who they were. Part of it was their identity. Part of it was that they weren't, being, they weren't submitting to the Assyrian ways. I mean, when you take out droves and droves and droves of servants, uh, what they would do is they would pick out the people in the best shape and the people who were the smartest and make them the servants in the, in the households of those who were higher up in the Assyrian empire. And so the best way to quit suffering is to get on board with the Assyrian way of life. And so what I'm seeing here is that Sin is often the result of trying to eliminate the possibility of suffering. A lot of times we sin when we try to just flat out eliminate the possibility of suffering. Well, if that's going to cost me something, I'm not going to do that. If they're going to turn from me because of what I believe, I'm not going to tell them what I believe. You understand what I'm saying? So much of our sin comes from the desire not to suffer. If following Christ makes me suffer, then a lot of times the sin that comes into our life is because we say, well, I'm not going to follow Christ in that manner. I'll follow you here, but not here. I'll, I'll, I'll talk this way when I'm in this place, and I'll talk this way when I'm in that. And, and we change the way we're supposed to be because we don't want to suffer. And then we, there's questions that come up when we talk about suffering, like why do bad things happen to good people? A Christian would answer that by saying, maybe we're not all good people who are deserving of only good things, but we're sinners deserving of wrath, and thank God by His grace and mercy in Christ we have eternal life, but that means we will suffer in this life. It's not always the most... Um, popular uh, thing to sit in a pulpit and say to people, hey, part of the reality that you have in Christ as a co-heir with Christ is that you will suffer with Christ. But it's a sin to tell you otherwise because I want to be a people pleaser. It's a sin to tell you otherwise because I want to keep the numbers high at Crosspoint. It's a sin to tell you otherwise because I don't want you to go and tell people that we're weird and a cult or something weird like that. I have to tell you the truth. Otherwise, I am turning from what's true because I don't want to suffer in some way that I'm called to. Acts 14.22 says it's through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom. The reality there is you enter the kingdom, but a lot of times people lose sight of the kingdom because of the tribulations. And so there's something sobering about these prophecy studies. We're like, yeah, well, reality for us is we're going to suffer, but we're also among the most blessed to ever walk on planet Earth. And so that, that has an effect on us that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. To say that God is our refuge is to imply that we need a refuge. To say that God is our comforter and our help implies that we need comfort and help. 
Some of us would like the option where we don't need refuge, we don't need comfort, and we don't need help. Second Corinthians, at the very beginning, it talks about um, comfort others with the comfort with which you were comforted by the comfort of God. And we read that and we're like, ooh, I like verses about comfort. That's a lot of comfort. But the reality is you, they're there because you need the comfort. Like, you need to be comforted. And then you'll engage other Christian brothers and sisters in your walk that will need to be comforted because they're discomforted, because things are hard, because trials are real, because suffering is real. And so there's not a non-refuge, non-comforter, non-helper option for those who are gospel people. So my question is, what are some ways that we can daily acknowledge and express our dependency on God? What are some ways that we can proactively, on purpose, daily, acknowledge and express that we are dependent people upon God? Yeah, meditation and prayer. Not neglecting the discipline of time alone with God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we pray before our meals because we're supposed to be thankful and we're supposed to um, be mindful of where that came from. Yeah. Part of being dependent upon God is actually depending on God. So we don't go into freak-out mode when something goes terrible or even slightly awry. Some of us go into freak-out mode way too easy. And so it's one of the ways that we show we're dependent upon God is by saying, well, yeah, this circumstance may be really terrible, but I trust God. I, I trust that we're going to get through this. Usually, I'm going to be honest, usually those are the people who drive me nuts. Things are going really bad, and they're like, hey, man, I'm just going to trust God. I'm like, you should be freaking out right now, because that's kind of my tendency. But hopefully the Lord's changing me in that and rounding off those edges a little bit, because, yeah, we, we shouldn't just go into what are we going to do mode, because we're, there's never a point where God left the building and leaves us destitute and without him. What are some other ways that we can acknowledge and express our dependency on God? Yeah, absolutely. Being a part of the local church. Weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, working hard to um, preserve the unity that you have as a gift in Christ. How, how can you daily acknowledge and express your dependency on God as a parent? Tell them. So if, you're, I mean, if your children are anything like mine, they usually have about 3,000 questions a day. And that's 3,000 options to point to the reality that you're not God. And so you can tell them, well, let's go to the Word. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about creation or fall or redemption or consummation. It fits somewhere. Gospel informs everything. I mean, if they're having a problem with a friend, you go to the Word. If they're struggling, sleeping at night, that's frustrating to me. When, I'm, when I am dog-tired and it's the end of the day and my daughter's being utterly irrational because she's like, I, I just try to go to sleep and I start freaking out. And I'm like, quit being a girl, you know, come on, let's, you, you can take your thoughts captive, do it now. And I'm like, I get so riled up and it's like, or, or you could sit and pray and say, well, sometimes I struggle with the same stuff and it's good for us to go to God because we're dependent upon him. And it doesn't, it's not always some, you know, 
hallmark moment. Usually I'm sloppy and I fumble it, but there's options. There's so many opportunities. Even proactively praying with your kids. Time, Bible study is not just like a behavioral thing that you go through because, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a parent, so we've got to do Bible study. You, you have Bible study in your home because you're actually dependent upon God. Does that make sense? Like, you, you, you open the Word because you actually need it. Like, you wouldn't neglect eating meals as a family. Why would you neglect this as a family? Like, it's not just an exercise of, of you know, faithful, upstanding movement. It's an exercise of dependence and neediness and saying to your kids, I need this every day the way I need food. So our kids should see us as dependent upon God. The focus of Nahum, though, is not mainly the suffering of God's people, but the judgment upon God's enemies. Look back at chapter 2 in Nahum. The focus of Nahum is not mainly the suffering of God's people, but rather the judgment of God's enemies. Chapter 2 says, and every time I go to read this, y'all just need to hold on tight because there's like... On some of the other prophecies, it's like, oh, there's the bright part in the darkness. There's the bright part in the darkness. The bright part is still bright, but there's a lot of darkness. And so um, maybe it'll jump out more. Maybe it takes more work. I don't know, but listen closely. The scatterer has come against you, Nineveh. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. Nahum is taunting the strongest empire that the world's seen to date. Nahum is taunting them. Dress for battle. Collect your strength. Eat your Wheaties. Drink your protein shake. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none of the water turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. That, that part right there is, is noting some symbolism that was found in some of the architecture or some of the uh, history stuff that was dug up um, by archaeologists where they showed the Assyrians so strong that it showed them um, exercising dominion over the lions. Like they, That was part of what they depicted in their imagery was we, we, we're, we're stronger than the lions. And so um, in verse 13 it says, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke. The sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. How has Nineveh wronged God and his people? According to chapter 2. 
plundered them. Yeah. It's actually the Medes and two other groups, and, and I'm going to bring that up in a minute, but these, these are other soldiers from the outside that no, they don't even, they're not even worried about. Like all this imagery, these shields, these chariots running through the town square, turning over things, you know, doing business. These are people that the Assyrians aren't even remotely on the radar with. But it's not the Israelites. So how has Nineveh wronged God and his people? They, like Jerry just said, they... They plundered them. They picked them apart. What are the details of their judgment and fall in chapter 2? What are some details that just stick out to you when you're reading that and you're like, man, that's an image that is notable? Yeah. Yes, that is such a good piece of... Of, of imagery of like this, their waters. They're known for these rivers. It's sort of like like the cushion on, on top of the cushion that keeps them a stronghold. You got these walls and moats, but then you got the rivers there, and and it says that the waters that make them so um, luxurious, they're going to be running away, almost like you see someone just grasping at water, trying to cup it in their hands. There's imagery in some of the history of them like trying to. Um, put it in, in cisterns and bowls and things because they're trying to keep the water there. And so part of what the enemies did, if you read the history books outside of this, is that they would cut off the water supply to where things could burn up. But then when they laid siege to them, um, God used the rivers to flood them. And so there was fire and flood. I mean, you're talking some serious, serious end time sort of imagery on fire and flood to consume these evil, evil people. What are the most frightful words in chapter 2? There are a few words that are more frightful than any of the rest. Yeah. Behold, I am against you. Do you believe that God is against some people? We live in a culture where the idea of God being against anybody or being anything but for everybody, if he exists at all, is pretty normal. So my question is, do you believe that God is against some people? Can you imagine what it would be like to hear those words from God? This is the strongest empire. And the words they're hearing are, I, God, am against you. Consider when God chose to speak through Nahum and Nineveh. They, they conquered Thebes in 663. We know from history that Nineveh fell in 612 B.C. So it was sometime in that stretch of 50 years that God chose to speak through a prophet from small town Judah a prophet who would speak judgment against the city that was at the peak of its power and completely surrounded Judah. What do you think people were thinking when they first heard this? As, as we go through and continue to read more and more about what they're hearing from Nahum, what do you think they were thinking? Yeah. Do you think they were scared at all? Probably not. What, what do you think their reasoning was in their head? Yeah, who cares? I mean, the, the God, the one true God is saying, I'm against you. And if you don't fear God, um, that doesn't matter to you until judgment comes. You see what I'm saying here? Like the reality of judgment for God's people is so real. 
And so we can't lose sight of it because for them, the Assyrians were like, we are huge. This prophet from some backwoods hillbilly town is coming in saying, God's going to overcome us. Have you seen our walls? Have you seen our moats? It's really wide and deep. Have you seen all the rivers that even surround those? Have you seen our armies? And this prophet is saying, judgment is certain. There's probably disbelief that something so powerful could come to such ruin so quickly. Yep. Yep, that's a good example. I mean, most of us were, I mean, it's probably still pretty fresh in our minds how surprised and shocked everyone was when, you know, the planes hit the towers. Just, oh my gosh, we're, how could this happen? How, how, how did multiple planes get there? I mean, I remember all the questions on, whoa, how, how did this happen? How can we make sure this never happens again? We're, we're so powerful, we're so strong, but... There's a reality that we're oftentimes far more vulnerable than we would ever like to think. So this disbelief that something so powerful could come to ruin so quickly, the words that Nahum shares are not slowly but surely over time, Assyria will fall. He's saying it's going to happen swiftly. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come down. It's going to come crashing down. I'm going to turn this place upside down. So there's probably this disbelief. But God's words of judgment are never empty. It's something that God's people need to regularly remember, that God's words of judgment are never empty. Nineveh's end was traumatic. The brutality that they visited on other nations was visited on them a hundredfold. Dever notes, when you read through the history books and you read through commentaries related to Nahum, um, the Medes, Jerry, you were asking about this, the Medes in alliance with the Babylonians and the Scythians laid siege to the city in 612 B.C. The, the next major empire that the world would see would be the Babylonian Empire years later. But the Medes with the Babylonians and the Scythians laid siege to the city in 612 B.C. And listen, listen to how it went down. This is real. These are real people. This is a real empire. This is real falling of an empire. Real God exercising judgment that he spoke by a very real guy named Nahum who was from very real... Elkosh, somewhere in Judah. So I want us to see that this isn't some fairy tale of a big, a big kingdom falling in. This is very real. All these people are real. In 612 BC, they found themselves aided, those who were um, laying siege to the city. They then found themselves aided by rain and rising rivers. Uh, almost like maybe God had a hand in it, right? These rivers that had aided in the city's protection the thing that they were trusting for their protection, had flooded up against the city's walls until great sections of the walls fell away, just as Nahum predicted in 2.6. Do y'all remember when all of our lakes were dry last year? Remember what I was saying? Oh, man, it would be eight years. Eight years before those lakes fill back up. It would be eight years. And there, there was a guy, my... Uh, my grandparents have a place on um, Lake Tawakini. And one of their neighbors who has a real big, nice house, he, uh, he sold his house. because He's like, I-, I bought a house on a lake. It'd be years before this place sees water again. He sold his house, and before they even closed on the paperwork, remember all those days of rain that came in, and everyone's saying, oh, look at that. 
Like, I didn't hear any news sources saying, thank you, God, for blessing us with some rain. But sure enough, just as sure as, oh, it'll be eight years before we see these lakes full again, it was days. It was days. God blessed us with a ton of rain. This guy's selling his house that he hadn't even closed. Like, the paperwork wasn't even done. He's looking at the water going, okay, well, can't really reverse this decision. So what I want us to see here is that um, God used what they saw as their greatest protection. God, God worked. God caused rain. God caused floods, just as he said he would through Nahum in chapter 2, verse 6. And here's what a serious king did. You know what the most powerful king in the, in, the, in the world at the time did when this started happening? You'd think, oh man, powerful king. Let's, let's see what he's really made of. He's going to stand and fight. When God comes up against you, things change. And here's what he did. A serious king gathered himself and his household together, burning himself, his wives, and his concubines alive to ashes. He brought the house together, said, okay, they're laying siege to us, and lit it on fire. When the ancient site was found by archaeologists, it had been stripped bare, just as Nahum said. There was no gold. There was no silver. Interestingly, there were no riches in this entire empire that was the biggest one on earth at the time. But what was there was an unusually deep strata of ashes, Endeavor makes the note, when Nineveh fell, it fell hard. When Nineveh fell, it fell hard. So interestingly, Nineveh was actually um, wiped from the earth and from the pages of history. Like that's how profound the movement of God was on this empire, where people read about it in the Bible, and there's some history books that have some details, and, but no one knew where Nineveh was. It was so utterly wiped out that for the better part of 2,000 years, um, no one knew where Nineveh was. No one could find it. It wasn't until 1842 that archaeologists discovered its remains. That wasn't very long ago. I mean, yes, in terms of our lifespans, it was a long time ago, but really, in terms of empires and kingdoms and the rises and falls, it wasn't that long ago. 1842 is when archaeologists found Nineveh and discovered a bunch of these realities that were prophesied, things that happened. They found evidence all, all through the remains, and they didn't find any riches or anything that would say how amazing the place was because it was all rubble and ashes. Dever again has a note. He says, No amount of military force or explosive power will ever make false ideas true or wrong actions right. No matter how strong your country is, no matter how driven and determined you are to wipe others off the map so that you yourself can gain more of the map. No amount of military force or explosive power will ever make false ideas true, and no amount will ever make wrong ideas right. And he goes on to say, success does not hide sin from God's gaze. Every single time, God sees the evil. So when you see evil going on overseas, you see your, Christians, your Christian brothers and sisters being beheaded, you must not go down the road of why in the world would God allow that to happen? But you must say, our God knows evil. He, he sees every bit of it. Just because they're gaining power in some areas and gaining territory in some areas, God sees it. In the same way that Nineveh's evil rose up before, Nineveh's evil rose up again. And God saw it the first time, He saw it the second time. And for those who are against God's people, setting themselves against the kingdom of God, 
disparaging remarks against God, promoting untrue things, the success that they experience will not, will not persevere. The judgment of God is very, very real. And so as Christian people, we have to remember that you can't hide sin from God's sight. When someone says, why would God allow that? You need to say, you know what? God's going to judge that. God sees that evil. God will redeem his people. There is an eternal kingdom that's real. Guys, as I'm going through all this stuff and Romans and all these prophets, I see the rise and fall of these empires. I see all these ups and downs. I see all these like different cultural realities that people get wrapped up in. I see acres and acres of architecture devoted completely to paganism and to the universe and to the moon and the stars and the sky and to the, the waters and the deep. And the fact that the fact that anyone on earth still loves God is proof to me of God. Like, the fact that we're sitting in this room and we give two rips about what happened to the Assyrian Empire in the 600 AD time frame because God rose up against it, the fact that we still care about that and we still love the same God is proof of that God. The fact that on every continent and every country there are people called by God's name is proof of the movement of the Holy Spirit. These are real people, real rises and falls of real empires and the very real hand of God executing judgment just as he promised it through the prophets. Like we walk by faith, but if we pay attention to what the prophets are saying, you got some, some things you can, there, there are facts. You're not checking your brain at the door. Our atheist friends would have us believe that to, to go down this route, we're checking our brains at the door. There are some facts. There, this, is, this is real. 1842 is a real date where they really found a big pile of nothing that used to be the Assyrian Empire. Why? Because of God. Why would any of us still believe in God if, if he wasn't real, if he wasn't moving, if the spirit wasn't real, if the resurrection wasn't real? It, it, it's blowing my mind as I see it over and over and over and over again, the consistency of God and the utter inconsistency of his people. So God's people were not in charge. God's enemies were not in charge. Why? Because God's in charge. That's kind of the point of tonight. Because God's in charge. Chapter 3, I want you all to read it on your own. But you get down to, ch to verse 8, it says, Are you better than Thebes? I mean, it's direct. It's like, the very real Thebes, hundred miles, hundreds of miles inside the Egyptian borders that you overthrew, that no one could overthrew, but the Assyrians were stronger. God's saying, hey, Assyria, you think you're better than Thebes? And he overthrows them with the Medes and the Scythians and the Babylonians, who they weren't worried about at the time. It's a good and healthy thing to know that our end is coming and that no one escapes God's judgment. Many of us don't like to think about the end of life, but Psalm 39.4 says, O Lord... Make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. There's this reality that if I were judged in a court, if I did something wrong or was accused of doing something wrong, I'd be judged in a court. And if you don't like what the judgment comes out as, you can submit an appeal. And even if you are convicted beyond the appeal, there's still the possibility of parole. But in the high court of heaven, there is no such thing. In the high court of heaven, there is no appeal. In the high court of heaven, there is no parole. Judgment is final. Dever notes, Nahum did not call Israel to believe that God always does what seems fair to humans, nor did he say that God lets life take its natural course, unable to promise anything. No, Nahum assured the people of God that even when God allowed 50 cities to be attacked, as we read in the first chapter, and destroyed, and even if God allowed those people to be tortured, 
He remains sovereign and will ultimately do what is most just. As mysterious and difficult as that can be for us to comprehend, that's our hope. It's humbling to submit to the reality that it is God who is ultimately in control. I've cited Philippians 4 before for all the control freaks. It says, give me peace that exceeds understanding. The control freak says, give me understanding and I'll have peace. Give me the details, I'll be fine. But he says there's peace that's actually better than understanding. So it keeps us sober in our trials and bold in the face of evil to know that God's in control. Sober in your trials and bold in the face of evil. It keeps us obedient even when we don't get the desired results. We press on because we know that God's in control. He notes you can take the same methodology and use it in two different churches and God will sovereignly bless one and not the other. We're doing everything we know for this church plant. They may have 5,000 people and we stay just this size. Or we may explode and blow up and they may have 30 people. There's no perfect recipe for the kind of results we want. There are no recipes for particular outcomes. There are only recipes for particular obedience, but it is God who gives the growth. One man plants, one man waters, but only God gives the growth. Dever says in that sense, it's interesting, because he preached through every, a book of the Bible every Sunday. The guy's a brilliant, annoyingly brilliant person. And he preached through, and it was interesting because he says, if only God gives the growth, then here's the reality. Here's what he says to his congregation. He says, in that sense, this is a big point. He says, in that sense, my words to you as a preacher are more important to you than I am. Think about that. Think about when you gather to listen to a Bible study or you gather to listen to preaching on a Sunday morning or you're listening to a podcast or you're reading something that's profound and helpful. He says, if it's true that only God gives the growth, then my words to you are more important to you than I am. Think over what I say, and God will give you understanding. I've got some specific things I want to pray for in light of this, so let's pray. Lord, in light of the text tonight, first I pray that we would not desire control over our own lives. Lord, I pray that we would not desire to have more control than you do, but that because of our deep trust that we would be okay with you having control over our lives. Secondly, Lord, I pray that we would know how to rightly submit to you in all circumstances. Lord, there are people in this room that have circumstances that I have absolutely no clue about, but there's something in them that, that can submit to you rightly, and I pray that you would lead us in that. Thirdly, Lord, I pray that we would be mindful of judgment. I pray that we would see sin the way that you see it, whether it's sin in our own life or sin in another's, and I pray that it would cause us to have that eye-gouging, arm-hacking pursuit of holiness that you present in the Gospels. I pray that we would take seriously the call to put sin to death in our lives, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And I pray that as we see wrongs in other people's lives, that we would lovingly speak truth and rebuke the wrongs, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ who are called to hold each other accountable. I pray that we'd be bright and salty to an unbelieving world. Fourthly, Lord, I pray that we'd be sober in our trials and our hardships. Lord, I do pray for anyone who's in a trial and hardship tonight, um, that you would give them relief, that you would give them guidance, that you would give them insight, that you would give them discernment, that you would give them an ability to continue to persevere when you just want to throw your hands up. Lord, I hate not being in control of things. I confess that right now. But I pray that in our trials and our tribulations, as, as things change throughout the ages, that anyone in any trial would have their eyes so fixed on you that they would be faithful 
that they would endure, that they would be bold, that they would be firm in their faith. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.